Hey, Pop DNA fans, Rhonda here. Just a quick note about our episode on the Hunger Games. You may have noticed there are two parts to this episode, and that's because we just had all the thoughts and feelings about this great series and ended up talking a really long time, and it was really good, so I didn't want to cut anything out, but we also didn't want to have like a two hour plus long episode. So we split this into two parts, much like how the third Hunger Games book, Mockingjay, when it was adapted for the screen, was split into two movies. So see, it all connects here. This was totally planned. So this is part one that you're about to hear, and it does end on a bit of a cliffhanger. So I'm sure you'll want to just jump right into part two. So uh, enjoy this fun discussion of The Hunger Games. Hello, and welcome to Pop DNA, the podcast that traces the historical and literary roots of your favorite movies and TV shows. I'm Rhonda. And I'm Erin. And today, we have a special guest joining us. Amber, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Amber. Hi, Amber. Hi. So, Amber, how do you know us? So, Rhonda and I went to college together at Central and worked together. Yeah. Uh, and worked together in the publicity center. I did. Yeah, I was a writer. And did a little thing. Wrote. We posted pictures, flyers, all that kind of stuff to um, get college kids willing to, you know, go to something that didn't involve booze. Yeah. Nice. Well, and you were, you were, uh, you worked with like booking like bands and stuff too, right? Yeah. Uh, I got introduced into that um, working at Central and then did that for a little while after graduating. Cool. Sweet. Very cool. Pretty pretty rad. Uh, Yeah, well, we're so excited that you are our very first guest on Pop DNA. I I feel so honored. (laughs) (laughs) You should. (laughs) Uh, Well, today um, we're doing something a little different than we've done in our other three episodes, because we're talking about a book series, um, The Hunger Games Trilogy by Suzanne Collins, the first of which, also titled The Hunger Games, was released in 2008, followed by Catching Fire in 2009, and Mockingjay in 2010. But then we will also be referencing the films based on the books, the first of which, The Hunger Games, was released in 2012, was directed by Gary Ross, who also wrote the screenplay, along with Billy Ray and Suzanne Collins, the author. It's pretty cool, I think. Yeah, it's really cool. Hollywood's usually kind of stingy. Yeah, I think movies tend to work out when the authors are somehow involved in the screenplay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It starred Jennifer Lawrence, of course, (laughs) Josh Hutcherson, Hutcherson, not Henson, Liam Hemsworth, and so many others. Such a great cast. Such a great cast. A Stanley one. Tucci. Oh, man. With his fake teeth. With his little teeth, yeah. <laughs> he, I mean, he can honestly do, like, no wrong. He, right? Like, right? The cast, I love him so yeah. much. The cast of this series, I think, was, like, spot on from, like, yeah, Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Oh, the my main gosh. cast, all the supporting cast. 
I mean, yeah. it's Elizabeth Banks. It's just incredible. Elizabeth Banks. Oh, oh my gosh. She's so funny and so she's honest so all incredible. at once. I really liked her. <sighs> well, anyway. So there's always going to yeah. be spoilers. Always spoilers. <laughs> so just, you know, just deal with that. There's like um, a auditorium on spoilers. Like when we're talking about something 10 years after it came out. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. The first Shame on you if you don't know yet. It came out 10 years ago. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. But, you know, just a warning because people get angry on the internet. So, it's true. <laughs> what? No way. <laughs> they don't do that. Uh, but let's let's talk about our very first experiences with the Hunger Games. Sounds good. Yeah. Amber, what was your first experience? Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I was a little older than most people. I mean, these books came out in 2008 so I was already 21 just shortly after right. the first book came out um, but I, I think that just goes to show how you know timeless the story is really because it's a young adult book it's about kids who essentially are you know 12 to 18 the, the main mm-hmm. cast mainly 16 in the, in the time of the books so, so I'm definitely you know removed from it by that point in my life but it's still a story that rings true and I think that's because uh, you know a lot of the stuff we'll talk about it it parallels our own society a lot even though it's yeah. sort yeah. of post-apocalyptic set in the future all that kind of stuff but it's uh, also dystopian um, so yeah. yeah totally so yeah. uh you know reading them already older I think I grasped a lot more than you know say a kid that actual age or someone who's you know a young adult now reading the books Right. And there's a lot of great stuff out on the internet about, you know, how reading The Hunger Games as an adult is a lot different. And even just rereading it in preparation for this, you know, 10 years later now than when they first came out, you notice so many more connections that you didn't yeah, see the I know, first I time. Yeah. Cool. What about you guys? Yeah. Yeah, Rhonda, what was yours? Um, so I was actually introduced to The Hunger Games through the Twilight fandom. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. I listened in in the fall of 2008. Yeah. I was listening to at least three Twilight podcasts <laughs> regularly. Awesome. <laughs> and they were all talking, because, like, they ran out of things to talk about uh-huh. for Twilight. So uh-huh. they started talking about the Hunger Games, because apparently, <laughs> like, Stephanie Meyer was a fan. So, yeah, so, and I think, you know, like, it it, it was kind of, uh, I think it was kind of billed as, like, the next Twilight, Mm -hmm. in a way, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was, like, the same target audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came, like, you know, I think the, in 2008, like, the Twilight movies were just getting started, Mm -hmm. but the books were done, so it was time for new books, so it's the Hunger Games. Um, And, yeah, so I was like, oh, Hunger Games, that sounds... Yeah, that sounds really good. And so I, yeah, I bought the first book. Mm-hmm. And I was telling Aaron earlier, The Hunger Games was the first uh, book series that, at least that I can remember, that I read like, quote unquote, like in real time. Mm-hmm. So I read each book as it was released, and I was waiting for a year in Same. between. Yeah, and it was the first time I had experienced that. Like I was, ne- I didn't do like the whole. Harry Potter, like the Harry Potter, because uh-huh, uh-huh. like there, that was a big buildup with like in between those books. Yeah, and I would watch my friends, yeah, getting involved with that, and I was like, mm, 
Mm. <laughs> but with the Hunger Games, I was like, oh my gosh, oh, the goodness. next one isn't coming out for another year. How am I going to stand it? Yeah. So, what am I going to do? I totally felt it. Yeah. <laughs> but what, are you, what about you, Erin? <laughs> I um, first got involved. The, movie, the first movie was coming out when I was like 19. And all of my friends said, you have to watch this. Or you have to read this before we go and see the midnight premiere. Um, we all got dressed up as if we were from Pan Am, from the Capitol. <laughs> Um, and looked adorable. But um, so I read they the whole. They did. Um, besides like the Clockwork Orange references. They were, <laughs> they were good. Um, so yeah, I read all three of, of the books in rapid succession in order to go see this movie at midnight with my friends. Um, and I loved it. And I had so much fun. And then college and life made me forget them until I we decided to do this as a topic. I had only seen the first movie. So I only just saw the second and third movies um, this last week. So that's kind of my long journey. Fresh eyes. Coming in hot. (laughs) Oh, I I watched all four in the last two days. So same way. I yeah. watched I watched all four, all four of them are on TNT like a couple weeks ago like nice. in a marathon. So and I was over at my boyfriend's house and I just like I I was like, "Oh, Hunger Games is on. I'm going to watch all of these." <laughs> and my boyfriend's like, "So you're just going to you're just going to like watch?" I'm like, now? "Yeah, they're on. I'm doing this now." <laughs> 9 hours of Hunger Games, it's fine. Exactly. Gosh. Well, TNT is a sponsor of the show. So oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> they planned this for us. They send in the little airlift <laughs> first aid kit oh, like, for the. <laughs> we'll get some silver TNT. parachutes during this. What was that? I said we'll get some silver parachutes from mm-hmm. TNT. During yes, this. absolutely. They're coming. Love in. It. Uh, yeah. Well, like I, I think like we kind of mentioned before, uh, the first book came out ten years ago. Oh my goodness. Uh, just this past fall. Um, so Suzanne Collins, the author, um, did an interview with the New York Times to kind of commemorate like the ten the 10th anniversary. Um, she, in the interview, she described how she came up with the idea for the Hunger Games, um, and she said that she was she was watching TV, and she was flipping channels back and forth between a competition reality show. I don't remember if she said what what it was, but like Survivor or yeah. something like that. And the news, which was showing footage of the Iraq War. So, you know, this is like mid, early to mid 2000s. So, like, both of those things were huge. And she said, like, she's flipping back and forth between those and thinking about, um, you know, reality TV and kind of the televisation of war. Yeah. And those two things juxtaposed, like, is that the right word? Juxtaposed. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of gave her that. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's this bizarre and really seemingly harmful way that reality TV affects its actors. Like, looking at you, Real Housewives, <laughs> Long Island Medium, Dance Moms, Duck Hunters, what have you. Duck Hunters. <laughs> we buy in as a culture, and the Housewives or the Duck Hunters or the Long Island Medium are told everyone loves you. You have celebrity now. Keep going with what you're doing, and then future generations follow suit. And I think that that's something... Maybe less so with the celebrity, but I think that that's a way that Pan Am kind of keeps the, these games going mm-hmm. is there's some glory, even though they know that it's wrong. I don't know. It's it's really bizarre. Um, yeah. And like Katniss and PETA and their relationship, Gail doesn't believe fully that it was all right. for the cameras, you know, right. like, and there's that 
um, conversation with reality TV stars, like how much of this are they not even sure who believes what, you know, in the cast? I just thought that was really interesting. There's there's that moment in the first movie where, um, like, Katniss is like, we're not in love or whatever. And Hamish Hamish is like, this is a television show. You need to sell this. Yeah, you need to to sell (laughs) this. Um, And then that brings us to the sponsor system idea. Um, I pulled this quote um, from Gail where he says, what if they did it? What if for one year we just stopped watching? You root for your favorites. You cry when they get killed. It's sick. If no one watches, they don't have a game. Um, and then, obviously, they don't run away, even when they maybe could have. Uh-huh. And then we see what happens, you yeah. know. But honestly, like, if they had run away, like, what? where would they even Where go? would they? They would have wound up AVOXs or wound yeah. up wherever. And, um, right. Well, Amber, if you just want to repeat what you last said, I feel like we lost. Hello? Totally. Thank you. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no problem. Um, just along your lines of, you know, talking about sponsors and, and Gail's great quote about have to quit longer games, I think it's super similar to our current society's, you know, connection with, with sponsorships and stuff like that because you have, you know, families like the Kardashians who they've all become you know, entrepreneurs and business women to keep yeah. their name out, keep people watching their show. Uh, you have the Super Bowl that makes you pay a million dollars to have a commercial because mm-hmm. they know everyone's watching. Yeah. Um, so, Gail, right on the money, like, what would happen if we quit watching? You know, obviously yeah. they don't have TV shows the way we do, where if people aren't watching, they get canceled. They have Hunger Games and whatever Pan Am forces them to watch on television. Yeah, um, but he's I mean, he's right on the money. What would happen if they stopped watching? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think like what um, like what is so shocking to us as, you know, readers and viewers in our time is that, you know, this isn't like the uh, the participants of the Hunger Games, like they have no say yeah in their participation yeah you know reality tv now like mm-hmm. reality stars know what they're signing up for more or less yeah. but these kids like yeah. these literal children these that are throwing yeah. into this very public spotlight yeah where they're most likely going to die like they have no say right. in this. and yeah. I, I think we still have a little bit of that um with your shows you know like the bachelor uh mtv's <laughs> the challenge like that where you know you see shows you know sure it's it's fiction but there's that unscripted show which is about what these producers do to contestants on shows like that that they are 24 yeah. 7 inundated with alcohol because they know yeah if they're drunk enough mm-hmm. they're gonna say and do stupid things so kind of similar uh in yeah. a way that you know we are completely the same way the kids in the hunger games they know that they're going to their death so they're you know, their normal psyche, the normal things they would do, the compassion they would or wouldn't have is completely different because the end for most of them is dying in the arena. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. There's so much um, trauma through that shared experience of kind of being raised in this world where that's not only okay, that's like... It's state-mandated. State-mandated, yeah. Yeah. Um, So the Children of the Hunger Games to me at least, are prime examples of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
Um, so in the hierarchy for listeners who might not know, um, there are different things that an individual must attain before they reach their next level. So a direct quote is um, from the bottom of the hierarchy upwards, the needs are psychological, safety, love, belonging, self-esteem, and self-actualization. So those are all the rungs of the um, the ladder. And then the needs lower down in the hierarchy must be satisfied before individuals can attend to the needs higher up. So you can't have love without safety, which I mm-hmm. think is the main one that Katniss comes up against um, in her romantic relationships, or rather when people attempt to engage her in <laughs> romantic relationships. She says time and time again that she just cannot care about a romantic relationship right now because she has to ensure safety for District 12, Pan Am and everyone else. Um, she can't access the love rung of Maslow's hierarchy because safety has not been met. And I think, um, according to Maslow, you must have reached personal safety before you can attain love. All of the children of the Hunger Games show their love in misguided ways because of this. You know, Gail and Peta both attempt to communicate their feelings to Katniss and lack the ability to listen to her answer. Instead, they just keep trying to convince her. This is kind of a, this reminded me at least of a fight or flight, like survivalist approach to loving someone. You know, they rely on themselves to react quickly and make snap judgment about others without opening a dialogue. And they do so in trying to find kind of love from Katniss as well, I think. And then um, when it comes to that two-way dialogue, they fall short. And then in Katniss, um, folk in Katniss, you see the survivalist mentality um, because she focuses on protecting others and won't really allow herself to acknowledge her romantic feelings. Um, this is also a survivalist approach in kind of the opposite sense. She has to focus on protecting so many people that her brain does not have the time or resources to really figure out anything in regards to romance um, because these romantic thoughts feel a little pointless when you're trying to survive, you know? Right. Well, yeah. and like even and, below like that physical safety, I think even below that is like food, right? Right. Which yeah. nobody in this world has enough food. Yeah. So that's like what we're all trying to deal with. And yeah. I think, um, I think honestly it's noticed even before Gail and Peta come into her life with her relationship with her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because after, you know, losing her dad, that was kind of her first, form of safety yeah. so after he was gone and then her mom completely shut off right. and shut out so she didn't have that safety from her mom so you know when she has those interactions in the first book with her mom where she's very harsh very short um, mm-hmm. and then de- demanding when she's first reaped about her mom having to show up for prim yeah you know, i think she doesn't even realize that love with her mom until probably in mockingjay in district 13 when she's there and taking care of katniss Right. Absolutely. And they, yeah, in District 13, when they finally have at least some semblance of security, yeah. but even that isn't, you yeah. know, certain. So, gosh, yeah. Um, yeah. All of these factors, um, the multiple massacres, the murders that she is forced <laughs> to commit, you know, um, and then to lead this revolution. And then arguably to act as more of a mother than her mother, at least in Katniss, Katniss feels that way. We Mm -hmm. don't know how Prim feels about it. We don't know how the mom is feeling, but we do know that Katniss feels very abandoned. Um, As you mentioned, 
Um, I think Katniss is a symbol of strength and independence. But the first thing that I asked Rhonda... Yeah, she's felt that way since losing her parents. Yeah. Absolutely. And yet, I hadn't visited this in, like, ten years. And the first thing I asked Rhonda was whether she was Team Peta or Team Gale. So I didn't remember (laughs) the strong feminist woman who takes care of the entire world around her. I asked which relationship Rhonda preferred her to be in. And I, like... That made me super cringy. Like, why did we have to talk about the hunger? I think similar to what Rhonda said about how it came out at the same time as Twilight. Um, yeah, and there's that was a very that, big aspect of that, Twilight. like weird yeah. romantic thing. So like, yeah, I just started thinking about why do we force Katniss Everdeen into a romantic comedy? Um, she's not in the new Rebel Wilson do remember, movie. Do you remember what? Uh, what team I said I was. You said you were Team Katniss. Yeah, exactly. Which was the inspiration <laughs> for this whole thought process. Because <laughs> Katniss is. But, but real talk, PETA. PETA, <laughs> come on. Which, yeah, PETA. I love bread. I love yes. PETA. <laughs> this yeah, is ready I was honestly, while we're on this side tangent, I was totally Gale through the first. Was first half of the third book until kind of that starts to go down and Katniss Mm -hmm. starts you know see a little bit of what he's capable of and then kind of his war tactics and then some of that other stuff and then in the um you know epilogue she sort of talks about how you know she was already strong enough that she didn't need that she needed somebody who was caring and loyal and then at that time I was like. All right, Peter was the right choice. <laughs> yes. Totally. Well, and he can make cakes. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, why? And, and, and then looking back, I watched, uh, as you know, as we transition into talking about it as a romance, but um, I watched a YouTube video, and it was kind of like the nine things that you realize as an adult watching. <laughs> yeah. And it talks about how Gail is a jerk, and I was like, Wait, where is this going? And the talk talks about that first scene where he's like, hey, if you can deer, like, what are you going to do with 100 pounds of meat? Like, Katniss couldn't carry 100 pounds of meat home. Give yeah. me a break. She totally could. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I think, I think in a little ways, not that it's full-on manipulative or gaslighting, but, but there's a lot of conversations where he's kind of, almost in a way, sounds like he guilts her a little yeah. bit into liking him. Like, there's a scene where they kiss. Uh, when they're back in the Victor village and he yeah. says, uh, you only kiss me because I'm broken or, or hurt or sick, right. whatever oh, the word he was. He, after he like gets whipped by the peacekeeper and he's like, on yeah. The... yeah. So yeah. He, yep. And so he talks about how that was their first kiss and she kisses him again there when they're there, uh, when she's singing 12 down for the first time back in the house in the Victor village. And he says, Oh, this is where you kissed me. Like he's kind of bringing up those feelings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she does again. And then he says, you know, you know, like something along the lines of like he knows it's not real because she only kisses him when he's sick, and it was just kind of like uh-huh. looking back at it, I was like, oh no, they're right. He kind yeah. of is a manipulative jerk. T- he totally is. And they're all screaming at Katniss to love these guys, and then she tries to. She like, I feel like that scene made me so sick too because she's still trying to make people happy mm-hmm. with that outside of her own wants. You know, she's like, he wants totally. me to kiss him. So I'm going yep. to, even if I don't need that. And like, yeah, that his whole response to that was just 
disgusting. It made my, which wasn't something I noticed when I was 19, which is such an interesting change is now that I'm older, I'm like, oh no, (laughs) no, no, no. (laughs) That's a deal breaker, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Watch out for these red flags. Right. Absolutely. As Dr. Phil would say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what are you? My last little blurb was um, leading in to Rhonda's section about other similar literature, I thought of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, um, because the beginning, um, the reaping, is pretty much the lottery ceremony as written by Shirley Jackson in, like, 1948. Um, we'll include the full text in our... Um, yeah, we'll have, there's a link to it. Our we'll, little blog. we'll put it in our post. Yeah, But it's basically just about a similar community who can't support all of its... Um, people so they have to stone one of them um, okay so that is the one where like, like they have to pick the pebbles yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. i was introduced to that in my high school english class like my junior yeah. yes i think every high school year i think <laughs> yeah yeah so when i saw that i was like wait i think i have read this i'm pretty sure i know this piece yeah <laughs> it's, it's like inspired such a love in me for shirley jackson because i think she writes such interesting dystopian um pieces and that yeah i just can't watch the beginning of hunger games without seeing the lottery of the lottery yeah Yeah. for sure well they even call it a lottery don't they a little yeah i think so names out of the board yeah 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 um but that's interesting that you think of that you like connect the lottery to dystopian fiction because i would not have seen Uh it that uh way but that's it's kind of a dystopia in microcosm yeah. Because it's just this one yeah. town. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, of course, like with the Hunger Games and with like what you usually think of as dystopian fiction, it's the entire country yeah. that's subjected to this. Yeah. To this lottery. Um, uh, but thinking of dystopian fiction, um, the novel that I think is compared to the Hunger Games the most is Battle Royale. Oh, yeah, um, totally. By, uh, it's, yeah. I think it's uh, Kashun Takami. Um, so it was written in Japan in the late 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it takes place in, like, a fictional fascist Japan. Um, and the state is known as the Republic of Greater East Asia. And it arose after an alternate World War II where Japan... Um, one basically um and there is a rebellion uh, that was put down by the combined military and police forces Mm -hmm. so this government um i think i think it's like it's japan and then like like parts of china too i think i don't remember exactly what um what geography it covers but the government controls everything Mm -hmm. um along with there's this unnamed dictator that we never really see but um the dictator or the leader has a very strong like cult of personality and is able to bend um the opinions and um yeah and the perceptions of the populace um and so the government has established this military program which is called well they just call it the program usually Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. uh, battle experiment number 68 um so they have 50 randomly selected classes of junior high school students so they're all 15 year olds and they're taken um and they're dropped onto this remote island Mm -hmm. and then they're forced to kill each other until just one of them 
is left standing. Yeah. Um, so ostensibly they say that this is to help the government and its military research survival skills and battle readiness, but that's not what it is. It's really meant it's, it's an intimidation tactic. Mm -hmm. It's meant to instill fear and distrust in all of Japan's citizens to basically stop any rebellion from happening. So basically like if you know that at any time your neighbor could betray you to save their own life, you're not going to trust them. So you're not going to band together to overthrow the government. Yeah, totally. Um, so once they put the the children on the island, they have three days to kill each other until just one is left, or um, they have these metal collars that are put around their necks. So if they don't comply with this, or if there's more than one left at the end of three days, the collars will detonate wow. and kill all of okay. them. Yeah. Um, so the students are given, they're given some survival supplies um, and then a random weapon or tool. So like some of them are given like knives or guns, but some of them are given things like a fork or like, oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they're just let loose on the island one by one. Yeah. Um, and then to make sure that they obey the rules and actually, you know, uh-huh. kill each other, uh-huh. um, the collars will track their positions. So they know where they are at all times and they will explode if they attempt to remove the collars or if they stay um, like in the forbidden zones. Yeah. And the forbidden zones are getting like bigger and bigger over time okay. and pushing them all together. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it's kind of re-sculpting the battlefield, which you see a little bit of that in the Hunger Games mm-hmm, as well. Totally. Um, so, uh, I mean ostensibly like this looks like pretty similar um (laughs) so the hunger games actually when it first came out so you know uh battle royale was 97 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then hunger games was 2008 so it faced a lot of criticism because a lot of people saw it as like it must be copying or even just plagiarizing battle royale the premise does sound very similar um you know it's a dystopian totalitarian government that forces children to fight and kill each other um, to maintain that intimidation and fear tactics over the populace. Um, And then in Battle Royale, there are a few children who do rebel and escape and who outsmart their Uh captors. Um, Colin says that she had never read or even heard of Battle Royale before writing The Hunger Games. Um, So I think, you know, that similarity is entirely coincidental um and like you know we were discussing earlier like two people can have the same idea independently yeah and even though it's the same idea I think Takami and Collins did two extremely different things with the same Mm -hmm. premise because if you look deeper into the stories they they're vastly different yeah um so the Hunger Games focuses on Katniss's perspective you know, it's in first person, it's her POV. Um, in the films, we do get more of an expanded view of mm-hmm. that world. But in the books, we're with Katniss the entire time. So because of that point of view, the books become a very, like, personal and intimate story about, you know, her survival and about yeah. family, self-discovery and growth. Uh, whereas Battle Royale, 
is a lot more focused on just like the battlefield itself and like the Mm -hmm. action um, on the strategic planning of the competitors. And it doesn't get too much into like the socio-political implications of the society in which the program exists. Um, We do have at the end, like I mentioned, there is like a small group of students who end up rebelling and figure out how to outsmart the game and they escape, but there's not a whole lot of exploration Mm -hmm. of that world. Um, But it is worth mentioning just because it is such, you know, a similar premise. Yeah. Um, But I think that it's a great example of how, you know, like we were talking about before, like it can be the same premise, but two completely different stories. And it happens, you know, it happens quite a bit. Yeah. I think we we see this, I mean, especially the, um, you know, the Divergent series, which came out. Yeah, sure. Similar kind of thing. Everybody's separated into specific factions. And, mm-hmm. you know, the it's forced upon kids at a young age. Uh, and then even with, um, you know, newer ones like the Maze Runner, similar yeah. thing. They take all these kids, they test these kids, see if these kids can survive certain challenges, certain things, because the government is trying to reap some reward off of it, which, mm-hmm. you know, is very much the same in, uh, you know, in Maze Runner, in Divergent, in obviously the Hunger Games, it's all for the gain of someone besides who it's happened to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about, about you guys, but like, if you're ever like scrolling through your Facebook feed, do you ever see like the ads for books that say like, Hunger Games fans can't get enough of this series? So it's like, Hunger Games is, well, and I'll get into this a little bit as well, but Hunger Games is kind of, it's kind of a reference point now for so much young adult fiction. Uh Uh-huh. But it's also, I think it's also a really, um, it has a really firm place in dystopian fiction as well. Yeah. In, you know, like, (laughs) it sounds terrible, like, but like the more well-respected dystopian fiction that's um, been written throughout. Well, more like, more like (laughs) the classics. Yeah, the classics. So um, I just uh, was mentioning earlier, Paste Magazine named The Hunger Games on their list of the 30 best dystopian novels ever. Um, The Hunger Games is number 21 on that list. So, yeah. Um, But this list includes novels such as We from 1921, which is written in communist Russia. So it's a very interesting, yeah. Um, and then 1984 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is on that list. Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. The Handmaid's Tale. Uh-huh. The Giver. Um, and, you know, the running theme in all of these novels is that the government has total control yeah. over every aspect of its citizens' lives, even to the point of trying to control how people think and sure. what they believe. Um, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is... Yeah. Um, it, if, you know, I think we're all, we probably all read that in high school, but uh-huh. it's, um, you know, it, the idea is that if people are given the opportunity to read, they're going yeah. to think too much and they're going to, you know, start questioning yeah. all of these things that the government is doing. So books are outlawed. Yep. Like we, nobody can read. Um, and, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is just like, the stuff of nightmares for <laughs> terrifying, but it's you guys, that same honestly, idea. 
So my sister had started watching that series, and I know oh. that like it's been a, a book for a while. So she was like, "You've got to get into this," and I was like, "All right." <laughs> I like wanted to renew my passport like by episode two of starting the <laughs> <Yeah>. show. <laughs> like, it was so yeah. What's her face character? gets left behind because her wife and child get to Canada because her documents like weren't in order and I was like yeah, that's not right. happening with me all of our stuff is going to be like legit ready to go yes. yeah when it was yeah it was so oh. the when the show started I think it was so timely yeah um but uh you know we see that um that same kind of like fear of the loss of freedom and autonomy mm. in the Hunger Games as well. Um, the yeah. capital dictates people's occupations. Yeah. Um, it essentially subjects the residents of the districts to a form of slavery. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the capital has total control over the imports and exports in the districts, mm -hmm. total, you know, economic and political control. They're not free in any way. Yeah. Um, the games themselves are a tool of the capital that are used to basically just keep reminding the populace that they have no power. Yeah. They have no autonomy over even their own lives. Yeah. Um, and this plays upon, like I was talking about earlier, this plays upon our fears that even our right to life can yeah. be stolen by a totalitarian government. And I think that's, um, I think it's a very, I don't want to say it's a very American idea, but, you know, like America, we're all about freedom. Um, but I think that that's maybe why dystopian fiction has become so popular here yeah. is that that is a very deeply rooted fear yeah. that, it, that, you know, this. And I, I think, I mean, on all accounts, warranted as well. I mean, you look at yeah, our, our society today, we have you know, a president who bans certain media outlets from being allowed at his press conferences. Right. So yeah. on some level, the news that we get is being filtered, whether it's absolutely White House or whatever that news station's affiliated with, that's going to put a spin on it. Whichever, whatever your friend on Facebook believes, that's going to put a spin yeah. on the news. So it kind of filters down through these filters that aren't necessarily of your control. And I mean, just looking at watching the movies again so recently, um, you know, District 12, they only really have electricity and television at night or during the games. You yeah. have, to have these districts that are, you know, completely in poverty. Um, honestly, most of them, but besides like the Capitol 1, 2, and 4, I think are basically all the rest of them are in poverty, little to no shelter. And, you know, we have millions of people in our own country who are dealing with the same things on a daily basis. Uh, yeah. And even some of the stuff, you know, watching uh, The Mockingjay, when uh, Gail and Katniss are trying to enter the mansion after they say that, like, refugees can be brought to the mansion, like, we'll feed you, we'll keep you. And they yeah. start separating children, and it's like, yeah, our country just did that, like, two months yeah. ago, and now yes. 1,500 yeah. kids have no idea where their parents are. I mean, obviously, in Hunger Games, they end up killing those children. Hopefully, mm -hmm. we're not doing that. But it's like, there's these... You know, we call it this slippery slope. Dystopian, yeah. yeah, and we call it this, you know, dystopian fiction. It's set in 23, and it's like, well, fiction it blurs with reality on some very fine lines that are create these fears. That is what these books are written off of, and then people read them, and those fears are realized and reinstated, and it becomes yeah. a little bit of a vicious cycle if you're not 
you know, if you don't have your eyes yeah. open. We're not talking that. about those kids anymore, but so <laughs> many of them are no, like, not anywhere near their parents yet, you know, from that whole awful thing that happened last year. So terrifying. It's hard happening right now. <laughs> yeah, we're not All sending right. them into an arena to kill each other, but right. as a, a parent, it has to be a very similar feeling. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, you have no like you have no control whatsoever over mm-hmm. yeah over yeah. what's happening to you over your own fate um another um another book that i mentioned was the giver yeah um that uh also an incredible movie if you haven't watched it watch it and yeah it. i think that you know i yeah i like i loved the movie as well i think that so the the book came out in 93 so, you know, quite a bit before The Hunger Games, yeah. but I think that it was kind of done a disservice by being released so close to other movies like The Hunger Games yeah. and Maze Runner and Divergent because people felt like they had seen this before. Sure. Yeah. Um, but The Giver is really interesting. So it's not so much about, like, a teenager leading the revolution, Um, at least not like in a big, you know, battle kind of way. Yeah. Um, it's more of a, a, like a quieter kind of more self-discovery. Okay. Um, yeah. But in this, like what seems to be a utopian society, they, um, have eliminated, um, emotion basically. Um, so Mm -hmm. that's how it appears so perfect is because no one is ever angry. No one is ever, you know, sad. Yeah. Um, but they don't have any other emotions either. Sure. Um, but another another novel I was thinking of um, in, you know, kind of The Hunger Games in the context of young adult fiction. Yeah. Which I think is a really interesting lens to explore. Yeah. Um, there was another novel in the 90s um, called Galax Arena. Hmm. I think was, um, I think it's an Australian novel. Okay. Yeah. But it was, um, so it was a kind of a similar idea, but what, um, what the premise was, was there was this alien race who mm-hmm. came to Earth and selected children and teenagers from Earth okay. to bring to their arena mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to, like, battle each other. Yeah. I don't remember a whole lot about it. I wish I had looked it up before <laughs> before I brought it up. But um sounds interesting though. Yeah, yeah, but that's kind of that similar I you know, they're throwing children into the arena to fight each other. Um mm-hmm. but it's, and I th- it's think they're the kids are technically like when they're not battling they're also slaves to the to the Yeah, yeah they are. Okay. Um which is very similar in some of the districts. Absolutely, yeah. Um, But, you know, I think the the important difference is that it's not their own government doing this to them. Okay, (laughs) sure. They're they're being taken. I mean, it's still terrible. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, But I think that's uh, what makes it. So for Valentine's Day, my husband and I, we (laughs) went and saw um, that Alita Battle Angel. Oh, yeah. First of all, it's incredible. The story is, but it's a similar thing. There was a fall, and there were these sky cities, so all of them but one fell. So this one has this guy, very President Snowish, who sees all, knows all. Um, and so 
the people who still live on Earth and don't live in this sky city, they are impoverished. They are completely controlled by the city above. Um, and similar thing, you have these kids who play this monster ball-esque type of game uh-huh. where it's either like get the ball and score the points or basically be killed. But since they're all machines, they can just be put back together. Um, and it's uh, very much about this... Alita, who is very Katniss-esque in the fact that she is going to lead this revolution. She's, you know, has no idea really who she is because well, she's a machine. But so she has this like right. self-actualization like right? journey as well, and then loses people that she loves along the way. So gets very fired up and um, not spoiler alert because this one's super new. Um, <laughs> Honestly, the, the movie kind of ends at a spoiler alert in a way that is definitely setting it up for, I'm sure, a trilogy, most likely. Um, awesome. okay. But very good, totally dystopian, very, you know, as we're talking about things that all have this theme, you know, here we are 10 years later, and the theme is very alive and well and kicking mm-hmm. and continuing through all, all, you know, our forms of media that we have. Yeah. Yeah. It's very prescient. Um. Yeah, that's a, I I had kind of wondered about that movie. I, yeah, me too. I wasn't sure, but on your recommendation, maybe I'll go ahead and see it. Yeah, no, I def, I mean I'm those are the kind of stuff that my husband and you know son eat up, and I'm like, you know, like I guess the trailer might be good enough. And then I was like, this was a great story. I'm so glad we is came. It, <laughs> is it a, is it based on a book? I don't. Know. I'm trying to Google that as I was talking about it, oh. <laughs> but. I would totally read more. Um, okay. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely very good. It looks like it's an anime series. Okay. okay. Taken okay. from an anime series. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's very, very good. Yeah. But, um, you know, while we're talking about the the idea of <laughs> throwing people into these, like, basically gladiator games. Um, for entertainment, um, you know, I think that I, um, on my on my recent reread, I was looking for connections to ancient Rome mm-hmm. um, in the culture of Panem. Yeah. And, you know, I think the games themselves are uh, a really big um, similarity. Totally. Um, yeah, yeah. So even the the name of of the society panem it comes from um this quote from um let's see where did it go oh so it's a phrase from the writer juvenal um in about 100 ad so he's talking about um this was um after rome had so rome was a republic and then it was taken over by an emperor who was essentially mm-hmm. um, a dictator. Um, so he's writing about this in 100 AD. Um, he said, already long ago, from when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties. For the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything, now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses which in Latin is panem et circenses. I don't cool. speak Latin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So bread and circuses. Yeah. Um, 
you know, food and entertainment lull people into relinquishing their political power, which is what Juvenal was saying. And that's also the premise of the Hunger Games is that um, people, I think, like, especially talking about the people who live in the capital, Mm -hmm. since they are the ones who are, um, you know, the most invested and the most entertained by the Hunger Games, they are kind of they've been like desensitized to the horror yeah the the horrificness totally. of this of this game um which kind of brings up an interesting uh idea that the the people in the capital are not really any more free than the people in the districts sure um they're just as much under the totalitarian rule of the president um, and any dissent is quickly squashed. Um, So, um, you know, like I was saying, they've been, uh, they like, they put up with this horrific practice. They've been desensitized to the inhumanity of it, but also when they do try, you know, when they do recognize and they do try to make a statement and speak out against it, like Cinna does on several occasions or um, even just inadvertently, um, undermine the authority of, you know, and the purpose of the Hunger Games like Seneca Crane does yeah. by allowing two victors in in that first book. Yeah. Um, when that happens, they're swiftly silenced. They are killed. Sure. They are eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this great article I found, The Classical Roots of the Hunger Games by Barry Strauss for the Washington Post. Cool. Um, he said, like Imperial Rome... The country of the Hunger Games is a once free society now dominated by a corrupt and rapacious capital city. A president exercises in effect the power of an emperor. He lives in a grand city called the capital. His government feeds off of its provinces, much as ancient Rome did. The people of the capital radiate a baroque and overripe luxuriousness like the lords and ladies of imperial Rome while the provincials are poor and virtuous. Um, There's a scene in Catching Fire, which I think you brought up, Amber, where Katniss and Peeta are at that party in the Mm -hmm. Capitol, and Mm -hmm. people are taking um, the pill that, like, makes them vomit so they can eat more Mm -hmm. food. Um, So... Which, uh, before the internet yells at us, in the book, it is a pill. In the movie... It is a drink. We know it's not stating that incorrectly. (laughs) That's right. Um, So this is, um, so there's kind of a common misconception that um, the ancient Romans had rooms called vomitoriums where Mm -hmm. they would go to throw up. That's not actually true. (laughs) That's not what a vomitorium was. Yeah. Uh, But the practice did exist. Um, The binging and purging practice. Um, So, uh, who is it? Suetonius talks about this with um, Emperor Vitellius. So uh, he wrote of him. He always ate three meals a day, sometimes four, breakfast, dinner, supper, and a drunken revel after all, which he was able to bear very well by reason of regular vomiting. Oh, wow. So you see that it was a practice for yeah. the nobility, you know, the rich people to eat as much food as they could and then vomit so they could eat more. Wow. Um, Which, and I think you see that, you know, time and time again, um, you know, even when like um, 
the time of like Mary Queen of Scots and the French at that time, yeah. you either were super rich, you know, living the life as a lord or lady, or you were poor on the street, which is, I mean, also shown in Les Mis, which uh, yeah. at the yeah. time of the French Revolution, it's repeating itself again. So, you know, to think from ancient Rome to today, you know, the way the past repeats itself, which is obviously the cap agenda with the Hunger Games is trying mm-hmm. to keep everybody squashed and not have the past repeat itself again but you know there's just so a plethora of points throughout time where there is a, a huge class divide maybe not on a scale as large as we're to believe in Panem since it's supposed to be the size of the US right. uh, but definitely something that's a very common theme throughout history to have a, a huge class you know division which the haves and the have-nots still right which we have even now obviously america you know we have what a lot of people refer to as the one percent or right. um yeah. you know even further than that you have countries that like south africa who very recently are no longer apartheid which is a very mm-hmm. very similar concept as a lot of this stuff that we're talking about yeah um yeah um also in the hunger games the uh so the participants in the games much like the um participate participants in, in the roman gladiator games yeah um they're not citizens Interesting. of the capital yeah um the gladiators were not citizens of rome uh-huh. they were considered tributes they're essentially slaves yeah. taken from regions that were conquered and kept under control by force right um, oh which also <laughs> happened in Aztec culture. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Very um, similar thing. They had different a representative from each tribe would, you know, fight. And that was supposed to, in a way, lead people to the Aztecs as well. So, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, what a crazy concept from so, so long ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is the Aztec empire arose completely independent of the roman empire and Uh you see similarities a lot um but then one last little thing about ancient rome so if you look at the names of some of the capital citizens you can see Mm -hmm. that roman latin influence we have cinna and octavia Uh fulvia cornelius portia caesar seneca which we know is a famous roman um writer um, and a street in Seattle. And a street in Seattle. <laughs> um, so, of course, Rome, like the capital of Panem, eventually fell. Yeah. But here is where Panem kind of diverges from its similarities to Rome. Um, so Rome's decline was very was very gradual. You know, sure. you can say that there were like a couple different events that really were the nail in the coffin for Rome, but it was a lot more gradual. Mm-hmm. Um. And you know, for Penham, we can we can say that that decline was gradual as well, but we didn't yeah. really see it. Looking at it through Katniss's eyes, we didn't see it until it was happening right then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, Penham underwent basically underwent a political revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, I mean, in all honesty, you know, reading through it, the it is definitely, I think, a gradual decline that obviously we don't find out until Mockingjay with District 13 right. but that's you know that's been their end game for the last 75 years which exactly. you have to think multiple sure. generations have died off in that time 
So there's enough of that hunger for a change that's been able to last through different generations who weren't even affected by the original fall, um, which I think honestly is a little bit of the capital bringing it upon itself with the games, the way that it's segregated and oppressed its people, which very similar tie to Rome. They did this, you know, same similar things with the Roman gladiators, bringing them from outside. Uh, so definitely, you know, both I would say are, you know, gradual, but the uh, the revolution of the Hunger Games to fit neatly in a trilogy obviously mm-hmm. happens a lot faster. Right. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it all happens in like a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's funny, like, uh, I, I don't, I'm like, I'm not like an expert on ancient Rome, but um, you know, it kind of seems like Rome kind of went out with a whimper, um, mm-hmm. then I went out with a bang. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, the Hunger Games essentially is a story about political revolution. Um, so I really started to think about it in the context of historical revolutions. So, um, there was this book that I, uh, read in my AP U.S. history class in Uh high school, um, The Anatomy of Revolution by Crane Brinton. It's kind of of an old book. Yeah. It's from like the thirties, I think. Maybe the forties. Um, but he looks at four different historical revolutions. So we have the English Civil War, which is also called mm-hmm. the Glorious Revolution, mm-hmm. the American Revolution, which doesn't fit with the rest of this as much, but it's in there. Sure. Uh, and then the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. So looking at um, the pattern that these historic revolutions follow, Brinton kind of summarizes that um, they move from a financial breakdown to organization of the discontented. So the people mm-hmm. banding together to uh, make demands of the government yeah. that um, that if the government fulfills those demands, it essentially, the government ceases to be in power yeah. if they meet the demands. Um what happens in the in those historic revolutions is that the government doesn't want to meet those demands. Sure. And so there's a battle um, or, or even, you know, a full fledged war. Um, and then um, Brinton says um, that, you know, there's the use of force, its failure, and then the attainment of power by the revolutionists. Um, so they end up winning and they come into power. Yeah. Um, the revolutionists, he says, have hitherto, nice word, been <laughs> acting as an organized and nearly unanimous group. But with the attainment of power, it is clear that they are not unified. The group which dominates these first stages we call the moderates. Power passes by violent methods from right to left. So um, according to Brinton, um, you know, obviously like they're not going to all be exactly the same, sure. but he's just looking at the general broad pattern. Um, three of the four revolutions he's talking about. So the English, the French and the Russian began in hope and moderation, reached a crisis in a reign of terror and ended in something like dictatorship. So Cromwell for England, Bonaparte for France and Stalin for Russia. Uh-huh. Um, of course, the exception is the American revolution, but. We don't have to talk about that. But in the Hunger Games, um, you know, like 
uh, like we were just discussing, we find out the revolution has been going on for far longer than Katniss's involvement. Right, right, right. Um, but it's once Katniss joins with them that it really is put out in the open. Yeah. Um, the Which rebels. I, I'd love to point out with this, and I think, um, you know, it, it comes down to Katniss's involvement. Um, and it's very similar with some of those other revolutions that there kind mm-hmm. of needed to be this pawn. They need a face. This, this, yes. And I think, yeah. you know, with Katniss, um, you know, she's really. And I think this is this is shown with a comparison of the movies to the books. In the books, I think while blissfully unaware of a lot of it, she catches on a lot quicker that she starts as Snow's pawn with her relationship with Peta and her and you know him trying to pacify the districts, and then you know turns into Coin's pawn by yeah, by the end right. of it. Yeah. And so yeah, kind of sure. while it obviously does a revolution for the country, I think there's also, you know, a parallel revolution of herself that happens along with it. Yeah. That reveal yeah, broke sure. my heart. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was so upset that things couldn't just be good for just a little while. Right. Um, are you talking about when, like, when we they finally out, take over the capital? Yeah. And we so there's that still using great it. Yeah. violent battle, um, which, you know, before that though, for the most part, they do present that united front. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Katniss does express like, you know, she might have like some reservations about something. Yeah. But for the most part, they're united. They yeah. agree the capital needs to fall. Totally. Um, but once they've taken over mm-hmm. and they have the council, uh, you know, of the victors. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to decide if they're going to subject the capital children to another Hunger Games. Yeah. Uh, we see they are not unified. Um, on the coin you're talking Ugh. about. So she's the one who wants and to subject um, the capital citizens to the same oppression that the districts were under. And um, I think Katniss honestly notices that even a little bit sooner when yeah, Peta joins her squad definitely. as they're making their way through the capital. Um, and then the interaction around Boggs' death as well when he gives her the hollow and tells her not to trust them, to do yeah, what she uh-huh. needs to do, do what she came for, which her goal's always been ending Snow on a very personal, vindictive level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think once she finds out that Coin orchestrated for Peter to come, someone who's still very intent on killing her, yeah. um, and then with Boggs is kind of, you know, pointing out, like, you know, well, you're really popular, and Coin wants to be the new president so if there was a free vote what do you think would happen i think that's really solidifies her dissension which i think we also see and i'm one of those people that i wish catching fire would have been two movies i think there was so much there was a lot to explore overlooked in catching fire where it's like mocking jake could have been a two-hour movie and been done with it so much happens in catching fire um you know that gets left out like meeting the people traveling to district 13 where Katniss first out there might be a district 13. Um, and then just a lot of that other stuff um, that's in the book. That's not in the film, like uh, Plutarch's watch that shows the mocking day. He tells her that a meeting starts at midnight, which makes you think like they're not like, what kind of meetings is happening at midnight? Like is, has this all been planned out even longer? 
Like even yeah. back to you know even back to Cinna saying that he picked District Twelve, um, and then seeing his kind of workbook for her look as the Mockingjay. It's you know it makes you think. How far back has this been planned? You know, yeah. we we find out that um, you know BD can hack the system of of the Capitol. So have they been able to hack video of Katniss even you know farther back? Um, and then just you know, Gail makes an offhanded comment one time on their trip to the woods that he thinks that um, the reapings are rigged. And so then you kind of think like, were they? What are the odds that Prim's name, somebody who's in the reaping mm-hmm. once? Mm-hmm. They would have been chosen. Like, has this been yeah. Katniss's path all along? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I had never Which thought I think, that. I mean, and that lays itself into revolution. I mean, revolutions start long before absolutely. usually yeah. the people who are fighting in them are even long involved. Same with Katniss. Yeah. Long before she's ever fighting. 